Thank you, praise team. We're going to now turn our attention to God's word. We're going to be looking at Psalm 82 this morning. We're going to be looking at the whole psalm. And we are in what's called ordinary time in the church calendar. And we are reflecting on what it means to be a Christian in the everyday 24-7 reality of our lives. And I think it's important for us to just understand that God wants to work in our lives uh, in the significant moments, in the dramatic, pivotal moments, but also um, in the everyday, ordinary moments of our lives. Uh, each and every day, God invites us again to be with him. And uh, one of the joys of that is that we get to be in his word and to learn uh, what he desires for his people. And so Psalm 82 is a really good uh, teaching on God's heart and what it means to know him and understand what he is about. So hear these words from Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you add uh, your presence uh, to the words that we have just read? Would you get me out of the way so that you can do the work that you want to do in this church today. Um, I pray your blessing over uh, this sermon, and I pray that you would meet each person where they're at, Lord, so that they can come to know you more, so that you can form and shape them, so that you can speak to their heart, and that they would be comforted and challenged by your word. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Men. So Psalm 82, the psalm that we just read, is what's known as a psalm of ascent. Um, these were psalms that would have been sung as uh, God's people on uh, holy days would journey from wherever they lived to the temple. And frequently uh, this would be uh, a time where there would be communal singing, and this communal singing was actually uh, songs from the Psalter that we have just read, like, like the one we just read here. And of course, if you think about it, Jesus also would have been one of those people. So scholars have said that the songs of ascent are almost like Jesus' hymnal, or if you want a contemporary version, like Jesus' playlist. And so we just... Uh, read one of Jesus' hymns that would have been in his heart 
and on his lips as he journeyed to Jerusalem with the rest of his friends and family as they went to worship God. And if you notice in verse 1 here, it's a really interesting picture that we get from this psalm. God presides in the great assembly. Here we see Asaph, and Asaph, not, scholars don't know exactly who Asaph is. Some speculate that he was a songwriter, like a hymn writer we would know, but also that he may have come from a group of artists that would have uh, been writing these psalms and would have uh, been from a family, a prophetic family who would write songs like these that have been used since they were written in order to encourage and form God's people. And so we see in verse 1 this picture that Asaph chooses in order to communicate an intense human emotion that he is experiencing. God presides in the great assembly, and so we are taken immediately off to the heavenly throne room. This picture of what's happening in heaven. And then from verse 2 to verse 7, we see God is actually addressing the heavenly court. One of the places where we see a clear picture of what's known as the divine assembly that's being articulated here is in the book of Job. You may remember at the beginning of the book of Job that Job uh, is being discussed by God and by Satan in front of all of the angels in a heavenly courtroom situation. And that's really what Asaph is bringing to mind, this image of the divine assembly in heaven. And then we get a picture of what the desire, what, what the need is from Asaph. Asaph was probably walking around and seeing people that were oppressed, victimized, and he experienced something that we experience when we read or uh, learn of terrible things that are happening in the world, right? When we look upon the news and we have that gut reaction, like that isn't right. That sense that there is something wrong, something not okay with what we're learning, how people are dealing with each other, how things are going on earth for human beings and the way that human beings are treating one another and how some people have more than others and it just doesn't seem right. And so the psalmist calls this to mind. And so we could put this psalm really in like what we would call a protest song genre. It could be living right there with maybe like uh, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan or Sunday Buddy Sunday, like U2 or even Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. This question, this longing in the human heart, why are things not the way that they are supposed to be? One of the ways we might articulate this is we could say that God is upset that the leaders of heaven and earth have fallen asleep on the job. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those jobs that's really boring. Um, 
we take our kiddos to this pool called South Bay Aquatics. And there, there's a bunch of high schoolers or college, early college, that are seemingly on their first job. And you can tell they're all getting paid minimum wage to try and get these screaming children to learn how to swim, right? Which is not an easy thing to do. And there's also a family pool that is there. And one of the things that they do is they are the lifeguards at the family pool. And this last time we were at the family pool, there was all these families splashing around, having a good time. But I could just see this girl, this teenage girl, who's sitting up there as a lifeguard. And she could not have been more bored. There was no rescue on the horizon, no need for a rescue, and she had to sit there and look at this pool and just think thoughts. And I've seen her for enough times that this last time she was just slowly dozing off, trying to make sure that nobody could see her and of course, you have that sympathy, right? Like, I understand your job is extremely boring, but this wouldn't be the time to fall asleep. In case a kid needs to be rescued, this is still your job, right? And in some ways, this is the kind of picture that we're conjuring up. We know it's not in her best interest to fall asleep on the job. She probably didn't want to fall asleep on the job, and yet there it is. Uh, she's grown weary, her heart is faint, and this is a picture that we get of what's happening in heaven, that this group, this leadership group, the leaders on earth and the leaders in heaven have fallen asleep on the job, and we see some really powerful imagery as Asaph gives us this picture. Verse 5 says, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. One of the ways we could ask the question, this really big human question is, what happens when the lights of heaven go out? What happens then? And we also could see this interesting picture here of the imbalance that injustice creates as we see that the foundations of the earth shook. I was speaking to a friend recently, and we were sharing stories. Some of you are too young to know about this, but there was a big earthquake in the 90s. And she told me about how uh, she was um, in the valley. She had gone to visit her grandmother in the valley when one of the biggest earthquakes, the Northridge earthquake, took place. And she was with her grandma. And imagine these old days where there were no cell phones, no way to contact. And there she is at the epicenter of a really scary, terrifying earthquake. And she told me about how all the ground around her shook and how all of the plates and dishes that were up in the cabinets fell out. And, She's shaking around, terrified, 
during this earthquake, and I, I had to share my little story too about how I was asleep over at my friend's in Calabasas, and I was on a rolling bed, just so it happened to be, and they had stone floors, and so when the earthquake happened, I was sliding like this during the Northridge earthquake, but you know, based off of how close you are to the epicenter of the earthquake, right, it, it's a little scarier. And it's as if the understanding that the foundations of the earth are actually built on God's equity. If you notice in our psalm that was read, that, that actually that justice is at the foundation of the earth. That there's a created order that God desires for his world. And it's articulated in the psalms as the foundation and so when there's injustice and imbalance, that's when you get this image of the earth quaking as things not as they should, going out just into turbulence. And maybe you could understand this sense like the world being turned upside down when things aren't going right. When we feel, uh, when we experience human injustice, right, that's one of the ways our heart might cry out and just say, hey, have the lights gone off in heaven, what is going on here? Why is, are, does it seem like the world has been turned upside down? God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And yet we see in verse 8 here, as the psalm concludes, there's the prayer, right? And it's a prayer and it's a claiming of a truth. It says this, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Two Old Testament passages that I think help us to understand when it says, for all the nations are your inheritance. First one is from Isaiah 6.3, and many of you know it, right? When Isaiah is in this same divine assembly, the heavenly court, and there he discovers that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. And that's really what's being declared in the divine assembly is just the holiness of God by the cherubim and seraphim in heaven. And yet uh, we see in Habakkuk 2.14 that there's a way by which even though it's declared that the whole earth is full of the glory of God, that the people of earth have yet, yet to realize this glory, have yet to perceive this glory. In Habakkuk 2.14 it says, But the day is yet to come when earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so there's this way in which the knowledge the discovery of God's glory is really God's mission on earth. He's trying to show human beings his inheritance. What is rightfully his that he made at the beginning has set forth in order. And even though there's earthquakes, right? Even though for a time there's these experiences of severe imbalance that really our foundation is injustice and goodness, and that when we go around speaking to everyday ordinary people, what's in their heart is the image of God that longs for things to be put right in the world. 
one of the pictures we see of somebody waking up to the glory of God that is full in the earth is in Genesis 28, 16. We see Jacob all night wrestling with a man that we discover at the end of the story is actually God himself. And as he wakes up from this incredible experience, this is what he says. Surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. Meaning that the glory of God had surrounded Jacob before that moment when he wrestled with Yahweh, but it took that wrestling, it took that waking up to realize just how present God's glory was in all the places he was before and all the places he will go. And so now he's realizing just what it means to be in God's kingdom, in God's creation. So we might ask the question, how will people come to the knowledge of the glory of God? And I believe that as we go into the New Testament, we discover God's mission being accomplished one human heart at a time. Meaning that God's glory, the knowledge of God's glory is really revealed one human at a time. The writer Dallas Willard uh, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, writes this, the revolution of Jesus is in the first place in continuously a revolution of the human heart and spirit. It did not and does not proceed by means of the formation of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these then would impose a good order of life upon people who came under their power. Rather, his is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul, External social arrangements may be useful to this end, but they are not the end, nor are they the fundamental part of the means. On the other hand, from those divinely renovated depths of person, social structures will naturally be transformed so that justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's from Amos 5. 24. You see, one of the ways we could put this is that the kingdom of God moves forward not by force, but through fascination. Like once you really see who God is, once you really understand what Jesus is about, you will be so fascinated, the human heart will be so fascinated by who Jesus is that there would not need to be any reason to force people or to coerce them into the kingdom. This is because Jesus only needs the human heart. He didn't have any of the power of government when he first set out on his mission or social structures. All that he had 
was who he was. The divine presence present amongst those early few who were so captivated by God's mission, who had so come alive to the glory of who God is revealed in Christ Jesus that they couldn't help but follow. They were transfixed and they knew that their heart were made, was made to be with Jesus. And perhaps what we need to add to the discussion here then is how God deals with human injustice because that's really what um, the question is being asked from Psalm 82. How does God deal with injustice? Well, one of the things we know is that the cross is at the center of the Christian story. And what that reveals to us is that Jesus willfully became a victim of human injustice. This couldn't be more clear than the story of when Barabbas is given freedom instead of Jesus by the mob crowd. This is clearly a picture of injustice. So in this one action, the cross reveals both the plight of every human being, that we cannot avoid injustice. It is all around us and it is also inside of us. And God's identification with it. That he willfully becomes a victim of injustice to show us just how much he understands what we're going through. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. There's a beautiful teaching um, from a theologian named Mirzlov Wolf. And he talks about uh, every Christian's uh, experience of baptism in a way that I hadn't thought about it before, but I find it to be really beautiful. You can think of the scene, right, of Jesus' baptism um, as John is there and he's, he's baptizing Jesus as he goes down into the waters. So then we see that the Trinity comes alive and is at work as the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And then the voice of the Father comes and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And there Jesus is willfully submitting himself to John to the waters of baptism. We see in this one picture, and this is how we baptize people here at the church too, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we ask, what does it mean that God is present at our baptism? One of the things we could say is that God is a creator. And so God is there as creator at the beginning. And then we say, well, why do we baptize in the name of Jesus? Well, Jesus is the redeemer. That Jesus has come to restore what was broken, a sin and death entered into the world, and now Jesus comes to redeem. And then finally, with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the sustainer or the completer, meaning that the Holy Spirit will take human history all the way to the end. And so Mirzlaf all says that 
in our baptism, we are baptized into the story of everything. That in a way, understanding this reality about God and his desire to bring the world to rights through you and me by way of the cross opens up for us the ability to participate in the story of everything. And so what was disordered, what the psalmist's heart cries out about injustice is reordered in our baptism as Christians. And that's why when we do a baptism, your heart has the opposite reaction to the, when you hear about the bad news in the world or the injustices you see in front of you. Your heart has this new reaction in baptism that says, yes, this is right. This is the way the world should be. And so that is why as Christians we set about teaching people about this new way. Jeremiah 17, 14, in Jeremiah's great moment of distress, writes this as a prayer. God, pick up the pieces. Put me back together again. You are my praise. And I wonder if we could just pray that along with him this morning. That God would pick up the pieces uh, that have been disordered and dismantled and when we find ourselves in dismay and the lights have gone out in heaven and the earth is shaking, that our prayer can just simply be, God, would you claim your inheritance? Would you end all of this turbulence and would you restore us back to your divine order, the place we were made to be and belong? And may we become the kind of people that can live into the story of everything and to bring forward your great order. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you work in our hearts to make for a better world. Lord, we call to mind all those right now who are experiencing injustice. Would you bring your shalom would you win one human heart after another until we could know injustice no more? And may you make us your people, a people that seek to love and to care in light of your love and care for us. Pray your blessing as we worship, Lord. Would you help us to just pour our hearts out to you and find in you all that we need. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.